Although we're going through the book of Ephesians, I want to take you to a passage in the book of Acts today that gives an interesting insight into what the Ephesian church experienced while Paul ministered in Ephesus. And uh, what we see here is a dramatic event in the history of the Ephesian church that had happened only a matter of years before Paul wrote his letter. Uh, It's an experience many people in the church, no doubt, had been through, uh, and it, it shows us what they had experienced when the gospel came to them. But it also gives us an insight into human nature that lays the foundation for how Paul ministered to all Gentiles as the apostle of the Gentiles. Please turn in your Bible to Acts 19, verse 23. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to remind you that Jesus taught that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, people say what they say because of what's in their hearts. And biblically speaking, the heart is the center of a person's uh, uh, mode for living. It's like uh, the control center in a person's heart, an operating system for living. The heart involves the thoughts and intentions and beliefs and desires and attitudes a person has. And in that way, we could probably say that, biblically speaking, your heart is between your ears. But don't think of the heart, biblically speaking, as just a center for cold cognition and logic. According to the Bible, the heart is not just the place where we have thoughts and intentions, it's also the seat of our loves and our passions and our cravings and our hates and our desires. And so the heart is the control center for a person. Now, God has made all human beings, not just with a heart that we live out of and a soul and a spirit, but He has made all human beings with, this is important, worshiping hearts. We were made to worship Him. And it's important to properly define what we mean when we say worship. Uh, If you study what the Bible says about worship, you'll find that what people worship, they will sacrifice for, adore, focus on, submit to, seek after, hope in, serve, uh, give to, speak about, look for peace, meaning, and happiness in. Uh, People will spend great amounts of time and resources and energy on that which they worship. And the problem is that ever since the fall of mankind into sin, our hearts are bent. We were created to worship the true God, but we tend to turn away from worshiping the true God to worshiping created things. And Paul tells us about this bent of the fallen human heart in Romans chapter 1 when he says that even though all people know God, uh, they know that God exists, they do not honor Him as God or give thanks because they're... uh, because they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. So, right there, Paul is explaining our proclivity to turn away from worshiping the true God to worshiping created things. Now, this proclivity to turn away from the true God, to worship created things, it is something that still lingers with us 
even after we come to faith in Christ. The New Testament is clear that the principle of sin still dwells within the Christian even while we're going through the process of sanctification. And so Christians will never be completely free of the danger, the temptation of falling into idolatry until we go to be with the Lord. And this is why the Apostle John ends his letters, uh, his first letter to the churches by saying to Christians, little children, guard yourselves from idols. You see, idolatry is not just the unique problem of a non-Christian, it's also something that Christians have to fight against. This is why John Calvin, a, a personal experience and confession of what was in his own heart, pastoral observation, and understanding what the Bible teaches on this issue, all led John Calvin to say, the human heart is a factory of idols. And when it comes to this issue of worship, we also need to understand, biblically speaking, uh, worship is not an issue where when you look out at the planet and you look out at the population, that there are some people, like Christians and Muslims, offering a form of worship to the one that they believe is God. According to the Bible, all people are worshipers. Even the atheists are worshipers. They are giving their heart to something. They're trusting in something. They're giving their loyalty to something other than the living God. And so the issue isn't whether, it's, it's not that some people worship and some don't. Everybody's a worshiper. And the main issue is, so what are people worshiping? And what are you worshiping? The biggest threat to the true worship we were created to enjoy is idolatry. It's false worship. And I want to show you how Paul confronted the problem of idolatry in Ephesus through a very interesting story Luke records for us in Acts 19. Uh, I'm going to read Acts 19, verses 23 through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me in your Bible. About that time, and th this is near the end of Paul's uh, almost three-year ministry in Ephesus, uh, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way, and the way they, they is Christianity. There was no small disturbance in Ephesus over Christianity and its spread. Verse 24, because a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods, gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she of whom all Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority didn't know for what reason they had come together. 
Some of the crowd concluded that it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hands, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash, for you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session, the proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. If you know the book of Acts, this is actually a rather odd kind of story. It, it's an odd way that uh, Luke records events, because Luke does something here that he doesn't do when he records Paul's visits to other cities. He doesn't record any of Paul's sermons, and usually Paul's sermons are used by Luke to give an exclamation point to some major important event or lesson to be learned from Paul's uh, ministry in that city. And he doesn't do either here. He doesn't record the sermon. He doesn't record the, the moral of the story that happened. Um, and so it's very interesting uh, that he does this. Instead of doing that, he gives us a synopsis of Paul's preaching through a non-Christian who rejected the message and he lets us hear the main point of Paul's preaching that Demetrius the, sir, the silversmith heard. And one of the things it teaches us is that Paul's ministry confronted the idols of the culture. Because what is it that Demetrius heard? He heard Paul say that God, God's made with human hands are no gods at all. And that shows us Paul challenged the idols of the culture. And through Paul's example here in just in Ephesus, I want to show you how to identify and confront and defeat idols. Let's start with identifying idols. Paul preached in such a way that it changed the lives of the people who were converted. And because Paul challenged the idols of people's hearts, it so changed the way that his converts lived that it affected the entire culture, right? But in contrast, the church in America has people who claim to follow Jesus but live no different than the world. That's the big scandal of the American church. Uh, we're plagued by this problem, and I think one of the reasons why is because people have heard false gospel messages uh, that assure them they can go to heaven without ever calling them to repentance from sin. I think that's one reason. But I think another reason the church in America has this problem is because many people are faithful to attend church, but they're going to churches where they sit under teaching that never challenges their idols. In, co in contrast, Paul preached to challenge the idols of the culture, 
and it actually changed in Ephesus the economy, right? The silversmiths and the idol makers were losing business because of the way Paul challenged the idols. Now, how did Paul do this? Well, Luke doesn't record for us explicitly what his uh, sermon was, uh, but he records a synopsis of it through the lips of Demetrius. Demetrius hears Paul preaching that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Now, if you want to know what Paul's preaching in Ephesus might have been like, it's not hard. You just go back in the book of Acts and look at his other sermons. For instance, in Acts 14, you can hear him preaching at Lystra. In Acts 16, Philippi. In Acts 17, uh, his famous address uh, on Mars Hill in Athens. And all of those, I think, are a good taste of the way that Paul preached to a predominantly Greco-Roman audience, the way he preached the gospel to them. And if you remember, in Athens, there was a background to it. Paul had to stay in Athens. He, he, he journeyed to Athens, and I, this is a rabbit trail, but I don't think Paul liked being alone. If you pay attention, he always had traveling companions. He always had partners he was working with. He wasn't like a one-man band. Uh, but he ends up alone in Athens waiting for some companions to come to him from another city, and uh, it's his first time in Athens. And so, as he's touring Athens, he sees all the idols, and his heart is provoked within him, and he wants to say something about it publicly, so he goes to the Agora or the Agora. And uh, the Agora was the marketplace. Now, when we think of a marketplace, we tend to think of uh, a place with shops that have good food and uh, a place with foot traffic, right? Now, the Agora was that in the ancient world, but it was more than that. It was where the culture was formed. There were shops, but there were also theaters and public halls and courts. Uh, it's where everybody exchanged news. And, for, and so, for Paul to go to the marketplace would be like Christians going to Hollywood, Harvard, Washington, D.C., and the New York Times. And he began preaching against their idols. What were the idols? Well, over every Greco-Roman marketplace were the shrines and temples and images of the gods. And those idols overshadowed the marketplace because all cultures are based on idols. Every culture, every nation, every individual whose lives are not purposefully, intentionally built on the glory of Christ will look to a created thing in God's place. Everyone looks to something to save them. Everyone looks for hope and meaning somewhere. And uh, this is where it became a problem, right? That, that whole thing where the, the Greeks and Romans had the gods overshadowing the marketplace, that was not like a Greek architectural motif right? It's because the gods were who they were serving in hope of deliverance. And we can learn from what they mythologized. We can learn from what they looked to as a cautionary tale for us. You know, beauty is a good thing. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, but if you mythologize it, if you make it the ultimate thing of value, if it's the only most important thing in all the universe, you no longer just have beauty. You have the goddess Aphrodite. Human reason is a great thing, but if you elevate human reason to the point that it's what we'll, we'll look to to save us, human reason will define what's right and wrong and deliver us from the troubles we face. You no longer have human reason. You have Athena. Money comes in really handy, and uh, uh, if you're good at making it and you're willing to be generous, it can be a lot of fun and you can do a lot of good in the world, but if you make money the highest thing of ultimate value, you no longer just have the tool money, you have the goddess Artemis. 
The gods surrounded the marketplace, not just because it was, again, a Greek architectural motif, it's because people were looking to these idols to save them. Now, let me just stop here and take a time out. The problem that I think some Christians would have with me preaching this passage this way in a way that I intend to give commentary on the idols of our culture, but also challenge the Christians that we can still fall into idolatry and we need to make sure that that's not happening. The problem someone would have with this kind of preaching I could hear uh, in American Christianity would be this. Well, yeah, of course Paul had to confront idols. He was trying to reach the Greco-Roman world that was polytheistic and steeped in them. But we live in secular America. Nobody is bowing down to figurines of the gods anywhere. Now, how I would respond to that is this. Idolatry isn't just the physical act of bowing down to a man-made statue. It's giving uh, a higher allegiance and a higher loyalty in your heart to any created thing other than God Himself. And that starts in the heart. That starts long before anybody bows. Where do I get this from Scripture? Well, I get this from Scripture uh, explicitly from Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 14, there's this scene where the leaders of Israel come to the prophet Ezekiel to seek his counsel. And this is what we read in Ezekiel 14, 1 through 8. Then some of the elders of Israel came to me, this is Ezekiel speaking, came to me, Ezekiel, and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols, turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from among my people, so you will know that I am the Lord." Ezekiel 14 explicitly talks about idols of the heart, but other sections of the Old Testament show us how idols of the heart function. How do they work in everyday life? Well, in Exodus, excuse me, in Ezekiel 16 and Jeremiah 2 and 3 and in Hosea, you get three of the the classic Old Testament metaphors for idolatry. The first metaphor for idolatry in the Old Testament is spiritual adultery. We love our false gods, and we commit spiritual adultery with them. Uh, The second metaphor is this. It's that of service. We service our idols. Uh, We give them uh, homage and allegiance and gifts because of what we think we can get out of them. And then the third metaphor would be the religious metaphor, right? We look to our idols to 
deliver us from trouble, to save us. And it's interesting that in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and I think we saw something similar to this when we were going through Isaiah, right? The prophets confront the leaders of Israel for committing idolatry when they entered into treaties with Egypt and Assyria, right? Now, think about that for a moment. Surely, there had to been some court officials who came to the prophets and were like, look, why are you accusing us of idolatry? We didn't agree to… we're not worshiping the Egyptian gods. We're not bringing the Egyptian… We're not, we're not worshiping them. Nobody's bowing down to an idol. We made a treaty. That's what nations do. They make treaties with each other. What's your problem? And the way that the prophets responded to them was to say this, okay, granted, but it was idolatry when you looked to the great Egypt and the great Assyria to be your Savior, to save you from these other nations. In fact, in the Torah, God had actually commanded the nation of Israel to be unique from other nations in, in many ways. One way was that He didn't want them to make any treaties. That was outlawed because he knew what they would do. He knew they would look to those other nations to save them instead of trusting in him. And so they actually were transgressing uh, the, the Mosaic covenant as well as committing uh, idolatry on the level of the heart, not by bowing down to Egyptian gods, but by looking to the nation of Egypt to save them, right? Uh, I briefly did something like this as a young man uh, with work. Uh, growing up through no fault of his own, uh, my father endured a few seasons of unemployment. There was structural unemployment in the aviation industry, and uh, there was a few times uh, where for brief seasons he was unemployed. So, I saw that growing up, and then uh, my second year out of university, I was unemployed for four months, and it drove me nuts. I absolutely hated it. I want to get up and go produce something somewhere for somebody. I want to go make something. And uh, I hated being out of work. And so, I decided as a, a young 20-something uh, to talk with the, the men in our church. I identified some men who had been successful in business or in their careers and just asked them. And, and what was going on was this. In my heart of hearts, what I was hunting for was some kind of uh, company, employer, some line of work where provided that uh, I was able-bodied and able-minded and I did my job, provided I did my end, that this company could provide me uninterrupted employment into my old age. Uh, and some of you are laughing right now at the foolishness of that, right? And what happened was the, the men of the church I went to, basically, they, they could tell exactly what was going on in my heart. And so they tried to basically say, you know, young man, it's, it's a good thing that you, uh, it's a good thing for a young man to, to think through when you're looking at your career, a job that'll be stable. You know, you want stable employment if you can find it. That's a good thing. Uh, and you need to make wise decisions and work hard, but you need to trust the Lord. Because no company, no line of work can guarantee you that, right? There's no guarantee in life that you'll never have to face a season of unemployment. God Himself could bring it into your life, not allow it, bring it into your life because He wants to get a hold of your attention. He might have uh, an intention for you in it. And so, uh, that, what, was, what was going on there? Well, in my early 20s, I was looking at life and trying to solve the riddle, and I was looking for something to be my provider that was a created thing other than the Lord who's already promised to be our provider. That was a kind of idolatry. Another way to uh, talk about idolatry would be to say it this way. 
An idol is anything in your life that is so central that you look at it and you say, if I could just have that, I would be happy. If I could just have that, uh, then I would know my life would have value and I would have meaning. I would have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Or an idol is something that you have that you look at and you say, if I were to lose that, I don't know how I could go on living. So how do you know when you've crossed the line into making something that may be good in and of itself, a a good gift of God? How do you know when you've taken a good gift of God and crossed the line into idolatry? Well, here are a number of good litmus questions. One is when you can't live without it. Uh, And I don't just mean that as a figure of speech, like literally, like you cannot live without this or you think you can't live without it. It could be an idol. Uh, Number two, when you're willing to commit sin in order to get it. You're like, I know what God's Word says, but I'm going to cross that line because I have to have this. Uh, That could be an idol. Or if you're willing to commit sin, if you don't get it, maybe maybe you're self-controlled enough to know I shouldn't cross that line, but you're going to be bitter, angry, vindictive, whatever, if you don't get it. Those, those are questions. Uh, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk uh, that it is an idol, but you might want to ask yourself those questions. I think those questions can be good for identifying potential idols. And it's important to note here also, as you think about idols, that an idol can be anything. You can make an idol out of uh, a romantic relationship, children, career, achievement, uh, acclaim, uh, your own moral record, physical beauty, accomplishments, uh, even your religious activity. All of these things can become idols. And this is why the Greeks weren't crazy to have gods for everything. They had pleasure gods and money gods and national gods and nature gods and work gods, and that's because you can make a god out of literally anything. Now, to be clear, when we as Christians lose one of the good gifts of God, we're sad, we grieve. We grieve over losing something that was good and beautiful in our lives that was, it was taken away from us, and there is a grieving process. But when you lose something that's an idol, uh, when you lose something that has become the ultimate thing in your life, you want to throw yourself off a bridge. And so, one of the problems we have in Christianity is that we have people who say they're following Jesus, but they're so invested in their career, or they're so invested in that romantic relationship, or they're so invested in being a ministry success that if their career takes a hit, or that person breaks up with them, or their ministry goes south, they want to kill themselves. Uh, Don't think Americans don't have shrines. We have shrines we're bowing down to. In Boston, they say, what does he know? In New York, what does he make? In Philadelphia, who is his family? Americans still have shrines. We still have idols. Our culture communicates to people that if you just have academic excellence and you get a doctorate, or if you just make money, that's the main thing. And what's fascinating is even the non-Christians, the, the, the non-Christians who are not necessarily thinking in biblical categories, okay, but they see through each other, and it's interesting to see their critiques of other people's idols, right? So, I'll just give you an example. So, in business, business is a good thing. In business, uh, what is the potential idol? The potential idol is profit, it's money. But in the artistic world, what's the potential idol? It's self-expression. And it can become so extreme in the artistic world with uh, self-expression that if you're a good enough artist to actually make money, 
it becomes an insult. You've sold out. How could you sell out for money, right? But our answer to that critique needs to be, you've already sold out. You've sold out for self-expression. Self-expression's a wonderful thing, but it can't save you from your sins, reconcile you to God, make you a decent person to live. Like, self-expression's wonderful, but it's not the main thing in life. Uh, And this is why Paul's ministry alerts us to this problem of idols and how to identify them. But Paul didn't just identify them, he also confronted them. How do we confront them? Well, Luke gives us this passage without recording Paul's sermon, and in many of uh, uh, Luke's uh, historical accounts of Paul, he allows Paul's sermon to also give like a punctuation point about some issue that was uh, controversial in the city he was in. Well, we don't, Luke doesn't give us that here. So, so how do we learn what the moral of the story is? We learn it through the unsaved town clerk. Through the words of the town clerk at the end of the passage, we see the irony of the way the Ephesian people are living, right? The, the town clerk sees that the social order in Ephesus is threatened by the worshipers of Artemis, more than the Christians. The Christians didn't create the riot. It was the worshipers of Artemis who created the riot. And that's because the idols always promise order, but when they're threatened, there's chaos. There's violence whenever an idol is threatened. And that's because the idols are always violent. And the way it works functionally is this. When people are in the thrall of an idol, they can look pretty respectable on the outside, but if you get in the way of their idol, they'll kill you. And so, uh, people in the thrall of an idol become dangerous, and this incident exposes the weaknesses of the idols, right? Artemis can't deliver the social cohesion and order she promises. Now, if we're going to communicate the gospel uh, to people while still guarding our own hearts from idolatry, right, uh, it helps to understand what the idols of our culture tend to be, and it helps to also understand for ourselves what our own idols are so that we can repent of them. And so, there are plenty of idols I could preach against from the pulpit today. I'm just going to narrow my preaching to three for the sake of time. And uh, the first one is already highlighted for us in the passage by Demetrius. It's money. Um, hmm. Excuse me. Artemis was the goddess of the moon, the hunt, and fertility of the land. And she came to be associated over time as the goddess of money, right, because of her connection to the fertility of the ground and thus good crops and thus prosperity. And on top of that, a meteorite fell outside of Ephesus that some people thought looked like Athena. And the town clerk mentions that, right, in our own passage. You hear the town clerk mention uh, that meteorite that fell. And so, some people took it and were like, wow, like she even went to the effort of sending us her own image. Let's set it up and put it in a temple. And they built a temple that was seven times, and it was all marble. It was beautiful. It was a gorgeous temple, seven times larger than the Parthenon. And it became like an idolatrous Disney World uh, of the ancient world. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It became a financial center. Artemis was the goddess of business. And if you wanted to be successful, you served her. You sacrificed to her. And in some cases, people participated in child sacrifice to her. And I would argue with you that we have an Ephesus right here in the United States of America. It's called New York City. 
I have a friend who worked in the financial sector uh, for uh, one of the big five firms in Times Square. And uh, they wanted him to work 12-hour days, Monday through Friday, then a full eight-hour day on Saturday, and then on Sunday, he didn't have to come into work, uh, but he did need to answer his emails. And it raised eyebrow. And on top of that, remember, this man has a commute. He, you, you can't live right next to Times Square. It's way too expensive. So he had like a one-hour commute. And on top of all this, uh, this is what they wanted him to do, and it raised eyebrows after working for a year and really trying to work hard and let his work speak for him and be a good witness by being a, a hard worker and a competent worker. He asked his boss if he could leave a couple hours early on Thursday nights uh, to teach a Bible study at his local church. And it raised, and he got permission, his boss liked him, but it raised eyebrows with uh, his fellow workers when he left after only working a 10-hour day on Thursday to go teach at a Bible study. And what happened in the long run to my friend was this. Eventually, he was let go, not because he didn't do a competent job, but because he didn't fit in. He didn't make his entire life revolve around work. He didn't go out with the other guys after work in the evenings because he actually wanted to go home to his wife and children. Uh, with his boss's permission, he didn't answer emails on Sundays because he had promised his wife that Sunday would be a day for worship and spending time with family. And in certain parts of New York City, in certain sectors of finance, the work is set up so that you have to sacrifice your family to Artemis. The work is structured that way. The hours are structured. You can't work a 68-hour work week plus commute week in and week out year after year and be a good spouse and parent. It's impossible. It can't be done. And I'll just give a confession here. I'm glad that I don't have to pastor in New York because I don't know how to solve that. It's like a Rubik's Cube, because on the one hand, do we want to say, no Christians in finance then? I don't think we want to say that. We want Christians to be salt and light in every sector of work in the economy, in every line, in every line of ethical labor. We want Christians present, and yet at the same time, the Christians who go into that line of work have this problem. Like, how do they do a good job in their work but not make work their entire identity? How do they make money just money so it doesn't become Artemis, right? Um, money is a potential idol, and it's one we have to wrestle with. Another potential idol uh, is the idol of romance. Now, if you've ever fallen in love, it is a powerful, powerful experience. But if you look to that other person for your sense of worth and value, if you begin to think, I'm nobody unless this other person loves me. They should make a song about that. Um, uh, if you begin, then, then what you've done is you've made romance, either the feeling of romance, the idea, or that, other, that specific person, you've made them into an idol. Uh, when I worked at the Master's University, I used to give an assignment to my college students where they would report on informal uh, informal counseling situations, just informal advice, sharing each other's problems and sharing ideas with each other, informal advice, informal counsel. And not a semester went by where we weren't dealing with some college girl who uh, became obsessed with a guy that everybody could tell wasn't going to treat her right. And it wasn't just the girls. Every now and then, a guy would become obsessed with this one other girl who either was bad news herself or just wasn't interested back, but he was still obsessed. Uh, it was a problem. Um, 
Uh, and you can tell when people are in the thrall of an idol uh, and the idol of romance when you have no boundaries because you can't say no to your idol. You know you shouldn't have sex, but you, you can't lose this other person, so you do because that's what they're demanding from you. You know you're in the thrall of an idol when the idol can do whatever it wants to you and you have no boundaries. Another potential idol that I want to warn you about is children. Now, in the evangelical world, uh, we don't often think of children as idols. And furthermore, I could see some of you thinking, oh, Pastor Chris, this is like the worst timing to preach on children as an idol, really, when the birth rate is falling? Like, seriously, you're going to preach on children as an idol? Well, I am. I'm going to preach on children as an idol in the evangelical world, and here's why. Because amongst evangelicals, we have some parents who are saying in their heart of hearts, if my children just grow up to be Christians, and they still want to talk to me, they still want relationship with me, and they're happy and successful as adults, then I'll know I must be a good person. Then I'll know I'm worth something. Then uh, my old age will be worth living. But if you start to look to your children that way, and if you start to live life through your children then two things are going to happen. They're either going to stay near you, but live a crushed life under the weight of your expectations, or when they become adults, they're going to get as far away from you as they can because they feel so controlled by you. And when that happens, uh, you're, you're going to go into grieving and you'll never get over it. You'll be angry at God. How could God let this happen? Why would God allow this to happen to me? But the depth of the wound is your own making because you made the child into an idol. Uh, Tim Keller tells the story, uh, Pastor Tim Keller tells the story of two mothers that came to him early in his pastoral career, and they both had the, the same situation. They were both married to non-Christian men. They both only had one child. It was, they both had a son, and the sons were becoming teenagers, and they were beginning to follow their father's bad examples and the women, the moms, were becoming embittered towards their husbands because of the example they were, and the sin that they felt like they were discipling the sons into. And uh, when Tim heard out the story, he felt like he had to uh, reason with the wives, the mothers, that they were right in their objections to what their husbands were doing, but they were wrong in the way they were approaching their husbands and handling their husbands because they were just angry and embittered. And so he was counseling them to forgive their husbands uh, and, and find a better way to make a godly appeal. And the mother who seemed less spiritually mature because she knew less Scripture and who also had the more difficult husband to live with, she forgave. And beautiful things happen both in her marriage and eventually in the life of her son. But the, the mother who knew Scripture well and appeared to be more spiritually mature and who actually had the easier of the two husbands to live with, she refused to forgive her husband, and eventually the marriage ended in an ugly divorce. What was the difference in those two situations? Well, one mother loved her son but the other mother made her son into an idol. Because of how cold her marriage had become, she told herself, the place in this world where I receive love and affection is through my son. And if my son loves me, I'm okay. And I believe in God, but if my son doesn't love me, I don't want to live anymore. See, even good gifts of God, like money, the ability to make money, and romance and children, they can become 
idols. And Paul confronted these kinds of idols amongst uh, the people he ministered to. Well, I've tried to say a few words about identifying idols and confronting popular idols, but now how do we defeat idols? Well, briefly, you begin by recognizing you can't defeat them on your own, but Christ has defeated them for you, and He's done so in two ways. The first way Christ destroys idols is through the cross. Now, but let me explain how. Idolatry is like spiritual adultery, and that creates a real problem with the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, because if you remember in the Torah, the penalty for adultery is death, and God is just, and the penalty for spiritual adultery must be death. However, God is a husband who desires to be reconciled to his wife. So, how can he be reconciled to this woman he loves when the law is calling for the death penalty? How, how do we resolve this? How can God punish the adulterer according to the law and still reconcile with her? Well, the answer is that in Christ, Christ came so that God could be both just, because the penalty is paid, and the justifier of those who believe. The penalty for idolatry is paid for on the cross so that God, who is just, can still be reconciled to spiritual adulterers like you and me. The second way Christ destroys idols practically in our lives is through the process of sanctification. The redeemed still struggle with running back to our old idols, so how does Christ help His sheep pull their hearts away from the idols that enthrall them? Well, He does so by giving us not only the grace of forgiveness, but also the grace of transformation, right? Uh, by His transforming work, Christ intends to redeem you from your idols. That's why He refines you. That's why He's given you the Holy Spirit. That's why He's given you Scripture and fellowship with other believers. This is why He allows trials into your life. Jesus died to overthrow the dictatorship of your flesh. He died so that you wouldn't die still clinging to your idols. He died so you wouldn't waste your life massaging and refining self-preoccupation. He died so that you wouldn't restore, uh, destroy all your relationships because of your own selfishness. And He lives to become your new master. And as your new master, He saves you from your idols. And we need to say here that if false worship is the problem, if idolatry is the problem, true worship is the solution. Turn from your idols and return to the living God. They're killing you. They can't deliver what they promise. Put your idols away. We want to be a church family who communicates the gospel well to others by confronting idols. But for us to do that successfully, first, we have to own up to and repent of the idols that are idiosyncratic to our own hearts and our own lives. And if we can do that, I believe we'll be far more effective at shining the light for Jesus in the circle of relationships He's placed us in. So what we're going to do now in closing is turn to prayer, and what I'm going to do is give you some time to do business with God. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you've been convicted about something that could be an idol in your life, to confess that to God and ask for forgiveness. Uh, if you look at your life and honestly you don't feel like anything rises to the level of idolatry, still ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes if there's anything in your life that has become an idol that you're just not seeing, and then I'll close us uh, in a word of prayer.